This is the Land Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. Hi guys, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. We've got a wonderful podcast for you guys this week. We've been busy talking about habitat management uh, techniques, where we've been at in the world, consulting, um, turkeys. But what we're doing this week, we're going to bring it back to deer. Um, there's a lot of conversations been having with folks and, and um, want to bring some light and clarity to the topic of of successful breeding by bucks um, throughout the rut. We see a lot of rut intensity, but what does that actually translate to from um, viable production of offspring? There's a lot of misnomers out there um, and some just wild thoughts that everyone hears around the campfire. And this week we're going to talk about exactly what the data and research shows from that success rate that I think will be very helpful into understanding the role that hunters and harvests play in managing free ranging wild deer herds. So um, that's what we're gonna talk about this week. But before we jump in, I wanna give a quick shout out to Vortex Optics and um, their new line of apparel that's coming out. Um, if you guys want to get your hands on some of that gear, check out Vortex, go to their apparel tab and um, get you some of that sweet gear and use the code LEGACY20 at checkout for a discount there. And then while you're there, check out some of their awesome optics as well, guys. That's vortexoptics.com. With me today, I've got land and legacy friend, NDA. Man, you got a new title too. Is it uh, Chief Conservation Officer now? I wish. Oh. No, it's that's uh, that's Kip Adams' role. I'm uh, I'm the director of conservation. That's oh, my title. Close, 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 close. Director of conservation, Mr. Matt Ross, is here with us uh, for National Deer Association. And uh, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Yeah, I've been with uh, the organization for a while, so my titles change. I don't know how many times, five, six times over the years. This yeah. spring will be. 17 years with the organization. Can you believe it? That's amazing, dude. Makes That's me feel old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that, uh, that'll rack up some years quickly there. But you guys have done a, a lot and you've seen a lot of um, um, changes and evolutions into um, just the world of whitetails. And I think that's such a cool perspective that, that not only you have, um, but Kip himself has been there a long time as well. He's probably, um, he's probably pushing what, 20 years now, close to it, right? He, or he actually so just celebrated his 20th anniversary last year, believe it or not. Yeah. That, that's, that's awesome. But, but from a consistency standpoint, um, you know, one, it goes to show that you guys are extremely passionate, right? In, in what you do, you're enjoying the work. Um, you're making a difference. You're making an impact. And that's, um, obviously very important, but shoot, you get to talk about deer and all the time. I love my job. It That's really it. is. Uh, it's a dream, you know, being able to do, uh, to work for the National Deer Association. 
um, and for do it, doing it as long as I have and work with the people that I work with, my colleagues and, and partners and folks like yourself, you know, being able to talk about deer, uh, talk to deer researchers, make a difference. Um, it's cliche to sound uh, this way, but in that time period, there's been a lot of changes in the world of deer hunting, you know, and yeah. uh, I know that NDA isn't solely responsible for those changes, but we're part of it. Mm -hmm. The hunters are a big, big part of it. And sure. the audience, like we're talking to today, you know, the men and women that listen to this podcast, that read the literature, that want to learn, um, it just, it, it is a pure joy to look back at a career and say, you know, we talk about it, people do it, things change. Yeah. It's, it's real. And I think that, um, I know there's a lot of work that goes into it. <clears throat> and if, if you guys listening, don't, um, don't read up on it and follow up. Number one, shame on you. I'm kidding. But, but you, sh you should be looking at what you guys produce on an annual basis. And that's the whitetail report. Um, because if you do want to see within, within the numbers, within the data, that so many states are contributing to this report, um, you can, I mean, it is very clear the the changes in mindsets, the educational process, um, the the shift in uh, deer herds and and population dynamics and age age class structures. Um, it, I mean, we're talking not just obviously property wide. We're talking state, region, national wide changes um, in in the course of twenty five years. Let's just call it from the from the late nineties to two thousands. Uh, it is it is shocking how much that has changed and and all that information um, you get a front row seat to it be able to watch that evolution kind of take place and I think that does come from consistency in in education and and truly um, understanding like the desires of of hunters and then them taking right research and um, information and honestly just putting it into action. Here come the deer herds responding, just like uh, just like you mm -hmm. would suggest. Right? It's kind of cool to be able to see that too, not only just in hunter satisfaction, but in the true science um, of everything. So, I encourage everyone to go and I think doesn't Mark Kenyon do a, he does a podcast with Kip every year about the whitetail report, right? He typically does and has for many years. Yeah, the the uh, the report's fifteen years. I think that we've been doing it. It's an right. annual free download for folks that don't that I guess mm -hmm. Matt's talking to you when he says shame on you. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a PDF publication. It's usually 60, 90 pages, but it goes through all of the trends in the national stuff going on with deer harvest issues, those types of things. It's a, it's a joy to put together. It's one of our pr proudest moments of the year. Our whole staff contributes to it. Huge shout out to the state and provincial wildlife agencies. Cause a lot of the data we are in a unique position that we can compile all of this data that is typically state specific. You you hunt yeah. in a state or states, and you look to your state agency, which are uh, to to track those things, and those are excellent resources. But we do it from a national scale, and um, uh, that comes out every uh, January. The twenty three reports out. You can download them all, all fifteen. We do uh, talk in other podcasts, and we've been on this one to talk about it. Uh, we do actually this year we just did a state of the deer 
um, union, basically like almost a state of the union on deer on our, on our deer report. And you can watch that it's on our YouTube channel. Um, nice. so that, that document is, uh, very important for a lot of reasons. And there's some, we're working on some cool stuff about that report coming in the future to make it more interactive, which I think is going to be exciting so that you can search it and do it in different ways. But, nice. uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a great, great publication. Yeah, and, and I think that it has relevance to today's topic and content of what we're going to be discussing because listen, we're all at, we're all at fault, I believe, for having um, anecdotal uh, evidence or observations in the field that then get transitioned into spoken word, camp conversations, and all these things just kind of snowball effect and then at the end of the day we've got um mindsets that are very influenced by um you know let's just say misinformation and i don't i don't say that to be uh, one of those hot button topics in in today's world of misinformation but um what what hunters we can do with good solid research back information is greatly impact um the whitetail herd as a whole like we've just talked about and we've seen the last 15 20 years um which is an amazing thing that we should be that we should be um proud of that that we that we can accomplish that um but that comes from good information and i think that there's a lot of um other nuanced things that get spoken um, such as, you know, the ability to influence genetics um, in phenotypic expression of antlers, right? What we're seeing, we can really shift these things. And, and I think it really kind of goes back to, um, let's say, the start of passing on those genes. And that's kind of where we're going to pick up our conversation and topic today is, is really just talk about um, breeding when it comes to whitetails, specifically bucks and, and um how successful they are and how successful they aren't because at the end of the day when we start here i think we're going to get a clear understanding that one what we anticipate to be true is not going to be true and then what we've potentially seen in the fall is really misunderstood too and when it kind of turns out to be actual recruitment and when i say recruitment i mean um, fawns that are six months old going into a fall or a hunting season. Um, so we're going to talk about all that, um, say, success or not success, however you want to think about it, uh, when it comes to breeding. And then we're going to probably dive off and go into other uh, or down other rabbit trails talking about genetic influences or, or, or what other things influence genetics. Um, from individuals that are not just breeding specific. So um, a lot to cover here, but I hope everyone listens with an open mind. And then if you learned something, encourage you guys to share it. I know it's not deer season, but fawns are developing, right? In some portions of the world, um, it won't be but a, a couple of weeks, months, and fawns are gonna be dropping. So um, it's important to continue to learn. Um, as we as we're trying to influence right the the deer herd and create let's say the best environment for them so all that to be said matt 
there's been some great articles that you guys have put together, not only um, in Quality Whitetails magazine, but also online um, at nda.com that really nail this home. Um, and really, I just kind of want to turn over the, the conversation to you and, and I'll done, I've done research on this, but I kind of want to just let you as the expert um, talk about it and then I'll, I'll chime in and um, make sure we cover a couple of the topics that, that I know we want to hit home and drive home, but. Sure. What, what uh, do we know about bucks breeding? So, well, there's, there's some good research out there and I'll talk about some of that, but just to kind of back up for a quick second, you know, I think it's natural, you know, talking about educating hunters over all these years and seeing changes in the dynamics of actual at a national scale, you know, the composition of what is out there. That's, there's a lot to be said for that. And, yes. and we just talked about that, you know, being, being really proud of that. And I think it's super natural for us to feel like we have control over certain things because of those successes, you know, like talking about older bucks being more present out there in a lot of different states, you know, that's, that's because of hunters making decisions and decisions about shooting certain deer um, plays a huge role into that. Uh, and we might get a little bit too cocky though, as, as a hunter base, we don't have that much control. Um, yeah. I know it's natural to feel that way. If you think about it from like, you know, it's animal husbandry um, to, to a degree, when you start talking about management, you're feeling like, what am I controlling here? I can make an influence. And we tell people that over, over and over again. Um, you know, we can certainly make a dog a different size, you know, think about dog breeds and being able to do that. But there's, there's just only so much control when you're talking about wild deer. And even in captive settings, there's things that we can't control or see. And we're going to talk about some of that. Breeding success is a big part of that. And that's where we're starting today. Um, and I'm, I'll, try to, I'll try to bring it back to the big picture at the end, because that feeling of control that I think you see it on no more forums, they don't really exist, but, you know, social media posts or campfire conversations about what you quote need to do to fix your deer and make them bigger. Um, I'll bring it back there, but we, the reality is we don't have the control that we feel, um, that, that we feel, I guess I'll just say that. Were you going to ask me something? Yeah, you're talking about the breeding success, and and it, it's very different. Let's say success from let's say a, a captive uh, facility to free range, and that that type of control. But right, like I, I really want this to set in to people is when we're talk about the actual success, like the replacing that a buck and a doe will do in their lifetime. Yeah. Um, like it, it'll be shocking to people, and I think too that um maybe this is more from like a supernatural um belief but i think it's a really good thing that as as hunters or as land managers um and let's say our predisposition to be if you will in general and i'm i say this let's say lightly but i, I guess i have to say it to capture the thought is from, from our general human disposition to be selfish and greedy, we're trying to create something, let's say, of trophy class, um, we would want that for ourselves. And so thank goodness um, that this free-ranging whitetail herd is not completely 
influenced or really um, influ influenced by Hunter Harvest, the the this the general let's say breeding success um, uh, dispersal of whitetails or or yearling bucks and the mixing of genes on the landscape. I feel like if we if we had too much influence, yeah, even too much let's say uh, opportunity to influence it we'd probably as humans screw it up like well they're, they're a super resilient species i mean deer live everywhere they live in grasslands and forests they live in urban suburban areas they've survived a long time because they are so resilient yeah. and uh you know i there are opportunities is probably not the right word but there's there's places in deer management and deer hunting that we do screw it up um but they're pretty resilient and their breeding chronology has a lot to do with them being as uh, diluted to some of those effects as possible and being resilient, being able to survive. You know, dispersal, you just mentioned that. Dispersal is when a deer is born and it leaves from where it's born and goes to someplace else. It's a mixing of genes. Bucks do it more than does, but both bucks and do it, does uh, will disperse. Um, the majority of bucks do disperse. You know, it's more than three quarters of all bucks that you see once they have a hard antler on it. They were born somewhere else. So that's part of it. Getting into the like breeding chronology, and I've done this for my entire career is talking to hunters about walking through a breeding season for deer. What does it mean in terms of how successful a buck can be? Um, it's not that difficult to do the math. And I'll do that to the audience and with you right now. You know, deer are uh, um, opportunistic breeders. They're not going to be, they're not monogamous. They're not like some species of wildlife that find a mate and stay together for life. We all know that, right? There's a breeding season. And they're not like other cervids or other, you know, deer species that will harem up like elk. Right. Um, and, and control a harem of females and defend those. Whitetails specifically, that's what we're talking about today. The way they breed is they look for opportunities to breed with a willing female breeder, move on to the next. So I always start there and say, is that an accepted uh, known thing within, within the deer rut? 99% of hunters, unless you're a new hunter and you don't know, say, yeah, I get that. You know, they're they're not elk. Yeah. 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 So then the second part of that is, well, how long does the rut last? Is it six months long? No. Is it three months long? Uh, you know, it can be pretty long. But what's the real peak of the rut? It's a few weeks, really. You know, it's not. And in some cases, it, where it's probably really a healthy rut, it's a week and a half when the majority of rutting behavior is happening. It varies across the country when it is. It can happen in the, in some, like in central Southern Florida, middle of July is the peak of rut. The majority of the US is in November, but it can go as late as February. So it's all over the board. But the peak of breeding, no matter where you live and where you're listening today, is usually only like a week and a half, couple of weeks long no matter where, doesn't matter what time of year, but no matter where. And if you're given a given buck, say, I don't know, 10 to 14 days, you can go a little bit longer. 
to breed as many does as possible, how many can they successfully breed in that peak period? And so from a chronology standpoint, from a behavioral standpoint, we also know if you're hunting that there's a lot of chaos in the woods at that time. You know, deer running everywhere. They're looking for opportunities to breed, but not every doe is willing. It's not like they're going to breed a doe every day. Right. Often what happens is they're chasing them around. The doe has to stand long enough to, to be receptive. They breed. They may stay together uh, when they're when hunters call it they're locked down. Uh, you know, whatever terminology you might come up with in your head, but they are they're together and that might last. 12 to 24 hours, and then that deer moves on. But there's there's an investment there to breed one doe, a couple days. Yeah. And so if your peak breeding is 10 to 14 days, could be longer, but what doesn't really matter. And you're investing in, when I say you, a buck is investing in, in an individual doe to breeder, say, one and a half to three days. And I'm that's a number that's I'm just coming out of my head. That's not based on a study, but it's a couple days investment. How many does are they really even going to breed during the peak of the rut? Yeah. It's not that many. Because at the same time frame, right, as they're locked down, there's other bucks locked down with other does in that immediate, let's say general area, right? Yeah. So as they're breeding, other bucks are breeding, and that's taking other does within that same population out of the equation to be bred potentially we'll find yeah. out we'll talk more about that in a little bit um but but at the same time like this is happening on a landscape effect yes it absolutely is and and you know i mentioned dispersal earlier there's also a behavior called excursions deer go on excursions their home range is is uh biggest during the fall during the breeding season uh you know at, throughout the year based on resources that they need for their for basic you know, you know lifestyle, um, the fall the rut is when an average deer's home range is the largest, and an excursion is when they leave that. They'll go away, they get out of it. Um, they might go a couple miles away and then they come back. Um, there's that mixing as well, uh, but all of that takes time, and all of that that uh, investment is part of the process of figuring out how often. At this landscape scale, a buck is even going to maybe not successfully breed, but take the time to breed a, a, a doe. Right. Some of the research shows, there's re, or I should say, there is research that shows talking about all of that happening at that time and the way you described it, Matt, is that you might have a buck, doesn't matter what age class, investing in that one doe. And they may have a competitor come into the picture, another buck. Yep. And it feels like that that buck, they don't know each other. They're, they're not really sure the stage of dominance either one is. They might have to challenge that buck. They might have to go chase him off or fight him or whatever. So he leaves the doe that he's been investing time in. Well, there's going to be another buck around that'll oh. slip in and take an opportunity to, to breed. And there's great research out there that shows, you know, there's often he that that buck A may have bred that doe, leaves or chases off a competitor. You may have a buck B slip in and also breed that doe. She may have twins. Yep. And 
literally 50% of the genes are attributed to, you know, one of the two fawns is attributed to buck A and one of the two fawns is attributed to buck B. It has been shown through DNA that about a quarter of all twins have different fathers. Yeah, yeah. And so there's that mixing. You have dispersal that's mixing, you have excursions that are mixing, and you also have these multiple breeding opportunities that is mixing of all this genes. We don't have control over any of that stuff. You can't control that stuff, no matter what you do. By removing a deer, by shooting it because it's a certain age or, or antler size, you're removing its ability to continue to breed, but all that stuff is not gonna stop. That resiliency of survival and, yeah. and, and being there, that's, that's part of it. Um, that same research that I just quoted uh, also showed that there's a pretty good distribution of age classes in those deer that are actually breeding. Even in the best managed environment, when you have a heavy older age structure present, right. um, yes, the majority of breeding is occurring by your mature bucks, the deer that are three and a half or older. But no matter how well you manage and shoot quote unquote the right deer, the deer of certain age classes, um, even in those situations, younger deer still breed, uh, you know, 15 to 20, 25% of the, the fawns that are going to be produced and recruited into the next age class. Absolutely. And so you can't control that either. That's a factor that we can't control. I think that brings a, a you know a, a great point. Someone someone's gonna say fifteen to twenty five percent. Well, that's not a lot, and and you know generally no, that's not a lot. But what I think that one people have to really understand is that like just because he's one and a half or two and a half and he's breeding, and then he will continue to breed more or contribute more as a three and a half and four and a half plus year old deer. What doesn't change from when he's one and a half, two and a half, three and a half, four and a half plus is his genetic information. He's passing. Never changes. Right? <laughs> so, so he might yeah. not contribute a lot when he's young, but what he did contribute to is the exact same genetic material information that is still passed on as he's three and a half, four and a half. So he could be a giant as a four and a half year old but was a, was a dinky turd when he was two and a half. And mm. it doesn't matter what you saw on his antlers. He passed on the exact same genetic material. That doesn't change as, as, as you see antler quality increase, genetic material does not change. That and blueprint is set. The yeah. blueprint is set at birth um, or at conception, really. You know, yeah. that blueprint is, is set. And I've said this, you know, in the past to folks talking about this conversation. Um, my wife and I have two daughters. Yep. I had no control over what sex they were going to be. Yep. I contributed, but I couldn't control it. Yep. Uh, why would we be able to control uh, what's going to be born out of a doe? I mean, mm -hmm. you don't personally within your own relationship have control over that. So that's just that happens when egg meets sperm and that blueprint is set. The things that affect antler size the most, and this is probably where we really should have started this conversation is, there are three factors, yep. age, nutrition, and genetics. Yep. The thing that we have the most influence over is age. Mm -hmm. You can choose to not chew at a deer. It's also the cheapest 
and it is the quickest way to getting bigger antlers. Just put deer into older age classes. Uh, there's there's duplicative studies out there that show when deer reach the maximum antler size. It's a sweet spot somewhere between five and seven years, depending on the study. But they all agree that deer will have their largest set of antlers somewhere between five and seven, seven years old. Um, around four years old, they're about 90%, so they're pretty darn close. Yep. Uh, about three and a half years old, they're about 75%. So that's still pretty close. Mm -hmm. And so depending on when to shoot a deer based on its age, depends on whether or not you want how close you want them to get to the maximum antler size that they're going to be that that yeah. blueprint will allow them to be and and there's always always let's say outliers or other things that that oh, yeah. even within that those those generalities percentage of of expression of genetic potential that changes things right like um injury illness um yeah. Food, you know, you could have had harsh winters coming out of winter going into antler development. Like there's a lot of things that were drought in specific regions of the whitetails world. There's things that that will influence those on an annual basis. But right, like you're saying, the, the phenotypic expression of, of genetic material regarding antlers will be generally expressed in those percentages based on age. And by far, age is your best way to produce larger yep. animals. But at the end of the day, across the board, no matter when that buck was breeding, he was sharing that exact same genetic material. Exactly. Young to old, from small to big, from injured to non-injured, it's the exact same gen genetic material. And we have to, as hunters, honestly realize that and even if it's 25% contribution that year and a half, two and a half year old deer are, are having in what offspring we see recruited the next year, that still is genetic material that's not going to change. That's right. I mean, actually, you just made a great point about, you know, what are we, what are we using as our, our trigger to decide a deer is not um, of a certain uh, potential genetic? Usually it's antler quality. It's the phenotypic expression of antler dimension, symmetry, uh, mass, all of the things that we think of with scoring. Uh, often, if there's something going on with antlers, it could be uh, age-related. It could be nutrition-related. Um, that's the second uh, part of the triangle. Um, it could be injury. You just mentioned injury. Uh, there's a lot of things that happen to deer antlers, either from injury to the body or injury to the antlers that they have nothing to do with genetics. And the same thing with nutrition. Um, we can control for age. You can control for nutrition. That's not as cheap as controlling for age. Uh, controlling for nutrition is doing management. But there, there is a clear line, cause and effect. You do land management, antler size goes up. Yes. The amount of food, and nutrition going in each mouth affects antler size. When you get to the genetic part of the decision triangle of how to get larger antlers, that's where we start having less control and it, we have almost no control. And part of that, you know, mentioning the, when do you decide or how, what's the deciding element? You gotta know that it's genetic based. 
Mm-hmm. You, you got to know it's genetic based from both sides of the of the uh, equation. Talking about you know the blueprint and how I didn't have any say whether or not we had a boy or a girl, and I'm proud to be a, a, a father of two daughters, but I didn't have a say in it. Uh, the same thing holds true when it comes to being able to make that decision, looking at a deer and saying that's not a good genetic. Uh, potential, a lot of times we're looking at the antlers of the deer, and there could be other sources that make his antlers not as big for the age class that you don't know how to control. Likewise, the doe is half the contributing factor to the genetic makeup of that fawn. You can't see anything on a doe. I mean, I'm I'm a vertically challenged man. I'll say that. I'm I'm a I think I shrunk an inch as I've gotten older, but I'm I'm five seven. Yep. Uh, my license says five eight, but I'm five seven probably. We're, we're uh, like the exact same. And I, my, I give my grace. <laughs> <laughs> my my younger brother is pushing six one. We That's came from the same same parents. You know, yeah. uh, it has nothing to do with nutrition. We came from the same parents. He just has the genetic makeup to be six mm-hmm. uh, one, and I'm not. Uh, when you're trying to shoot a deer and say, I'm removing it because it's got poor genes, doesn't matter whether it's a buck or a doe, you got to be able to see something in that deer and make a decision as a hunter, as you pull the trigger and say, that deer is poor quality genes because X. Well, for the doe, you got nothing. And there was actually, I think it was Mississippi State Deer Lab years ago. This goes back to like Harry Jacobson's years. Dr. Harry Jacobson is a, a, a legend in the deer research world, used to used to be a professor there. They had a doe in that lab uh, on that facility that routinely pumped out within the captive, captive research situation, bucks that had big antlers. Her mm-hmm. fawns that were males tended to be larger antler than average than some of the other ones. It didn't matter what buck they bred with her, in those research pens, she turned out bigger bucks. How are you gonna sit in a field, cornfield, soybean field, woods, whatever, you see a pile of does come out and decide that one is gonna produce the next Boone and Crockett in the county versus that one. You can't tell anything, it doesn't have anything. And she wasn't a very big doe from the stories I've heard. It's not based on her size. Yeah, yeah. And And I think, again, that's one of those things. It's like, I feel like if, if if we knew and or we could as a deer is walking through the woods there was like this meter on the side of them right next to the vitals that was like showcase their genetic potential right for influencing age class or not older age class but but better antler quality um even if we knew that as hunters we'd still screw it up it's like some of this like if you will ignorance is a little bit bliss from the standpoint of we know that older age class deer are going to express more antler growth potential right that's how we're going to yeah. maximize antler what's it the most secondly we're going to focus on nutrition um, and trying to maximize our carrying capacity with with quality of tonnage and forage high quality natives and supplement with food plots okay i can i can conceptually get there and know that yep. more human landscape is going to be healthier deer which then healthier deer are going to express more of their potential. Then on top of that, they're going to express more of their potential the more mature that they get. 
all that makes perfectly like take away the research. That's just common sense, right? That's yeah. intuitive. But when we get to genetics, to me, it's just a cloudy, muddy mess of thank goodness we don't have to really truly understand all of that. Because even as like, if you understand genetics, the way that deer behavior is, it's, it's, it's going to be confusing. And we're going to probably, if we understood everything as hunters, still screw it up. So let's just let that ride, let it be what it is, and then focus on the first two aspects of it. And at the end of the day, I think those who have focused on that from hunters or private landowners, um, managers of such, um, or, or states, let's say, that have built in, say, antler point restrictions. I know that's a whole nother topic, but um, who generally are selecting for older age class deer will then see more mature deer, larger antler deer on the landscape. We know yeah. that. Too. Exactly. And yep. most of those design elements in terms of restricting harvest of younger individuals is meant to, to increase age, not right. increase antler size, uh, right. although that is a byproduct of it. And let's sure. let, you know, let's get real. Antler size is a driving factor for a lot of hunters. It's not the driving factor, you know, creating food and other things. But yeah, a lot of this growth of quality deer management and interest in management in general comes from seeing older bucks and older bucks have bigger antlers in general. Um, there is some really good data. You know, I know one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was uh, success rates of breeding per buck. And we touched upon a little bit, but there was one paper that we chatted about pre-recording this that um, talks about a little bit more about the breeding chronology that I was talking about a few minutes ago about, you know, how much time is invested and how many does they can actually breed. Um, there's a really good uh, study out of Texas. Um, it was uh, an intensely, actually, I think it may have been Oklahoma, but it was Texas A&M Kingsville research, um, where for over a decade, they had a uh, about a 3,000 acre scale property. It was fenced uh, that they were able to collect a DNA profile on every deer killed, every shed antler picked up, every uh, deadhead they found, uh, they did research on there, so they would capture deer for other projects, uh, put tags in their ears, put radio collars on them in some cases, I think, um, track deer, do biometric stuff, looking at deer health. Anyway, they had opportunities where they had deer sedated and they took DNA samples off of them. So whether they were captured or killed or found dead, they took they basically created a family tree for the 3,000 acres. And they did this for about a decade, over 10 years. And what they found, now that wasn't true free range, but it, at that scale anyway, and take it, you know, take it for what it's worth, at that scale, at the 3,000 acre management scale, for about a decade, um, although they didn't get 100% of the offspring of every deer, they got most of them. Yeah, I, I would they, say this. I think it's to, to address that, hey, it's not it's exactly, it's not free range, but let's be honest, everyone, it's at a scale big enough that most of you guys aren't managing bigger than a 3,000 acre place anyhow. So yeah. within, within sure, there, there's not excursions and there's not um, um, dispersal. You know, dispersal that's occurring here. Um, but at the end of the day, 
this scale is such that this certainly captures home ranges of a lot of deer um, that wouldn't really go beyond. So I think that it's important to note, but I don't think it's important that it's going to, you know, skew too much of any of the information that we're going to learn here that you're going to share. Especially when it comes down to breeding, because we're just, you would think that in a situation that's not 100% free range, I mean, it's a pretty big scale property, yes. but it would contribute to them being able to know more about what's going on from a genetic standpoint, you know, the, the, um, the sharing of genes, the, the, the family tree being built, um, you just got more control over it in this situation because, because of those things. And what they found, and so this would be kind of like a best case scenario almost, Absolutely would be. Yeah. Uh, that over at that scale, over that period of time, that about 60% of the bucks and half the does uh, were successful at basically replacing just themselves into the population of a deer that survived past six months. In, in the bucks and does lifetime. In their lifetime. Not per Meaning, season. Not per lifetime. season. In their lifetime. So if you had a deer, uh, a buck or, or a doe over its lifetime, on average, half to just over half of them replace themselves in their life. They were breeding deer uh, and deer were given, and does were giving birth to fawns, fawn or fawns, but some of them just didn't survive. You know, not every yeah. fawn survives. A lot of them die. A, a lot of fawns. Lot. I mean, that's actually one of the, the survival strategies and the resilience that I'm talking about deer is they're pretty productive. Yes. They are built to be productive because they flood the environment. Think about not only breeding, this goes back to some of the original talks uh, I've given over my years of talking about, you know, deer aren't elk and they don't have a harem and that there's a peak rut and all of that. Well, that's designed by, you know, God and evolution. Deer breed in a very peak period so that they have a peak period of fawning. Yes. 200 days later. And they Small do that because they swamp the environment with fawns. They just, and I always, you know, talk about those old documentary videos of um, uh, like sea turtles. You can picture the videos and the documentaries of sea turtles, all those hundreds or thousands of little turtle uh, babies kind of going out into the water. A lot of them are going to get gobbled up, but not all of them, right? And so you sw swamp the environment. Deer do, in essence, the same thing. They want to swamp the environment with, with as many fawns as possible. Well, there are a lot of research going on with predation right now. It has been the past probably decade or so. And a lot of fawns die, even in the absence of predators. Absolutely. Somebody's probably thinking, this is a pen. There's probably no predators in there. Well, there's studies in the wild that mm -hmm. have zero predators on the landscape. And one great example is there's parts of the mid-Atlantic, like Delaware, that actually haven't even really documented ever a bobcat or coyote. They just don't exist in those states. And uh, they have fawn survival studies showing about 50% of the fawns die. They die from weather, they die from other things, but deer are designed to flood the environment with fawns based on the way they breed. And in this situation, talking about the percent of over a lifetime of a deer replacing itself, some of that's just, based on the fact that 
one, they didn't have the time to breed enough does. And it's also based on the fact that the doe may have given birth, but those fawns didn't survive. They just didn't make it. And so the average deer in that study, you know, there's a wide range. I mean, there's specific outlier examples of certain specific uh, adult deer over their lifetime that, that um, achieved more than one replacement. I mean, it, it goes pretty high. I mean, uh, but, but to, to speak on that, only 10% produce two fawns in their lifetime. So, so a large majority, right? There's outliers. Yes. I think, you know, some bucks uh, produced seven to nine offspring, one produced 12. Yeah. Uh, but, but as individuals, only 10% of the buck population produced two fawns where those are extreme outliers. Well, and only 10% produced two, but, but 50 or 60% produced one. But yeah, and think about this. You talked about we didn't say the term bell-shaped curve, but there's yeah. always a there's a peak in all your data. What's the average? This was the average. There are those outliers that produce a lot. Well, guess what? On the other side of the curve, there was examples of deer that produced zero offspring. Fired and uh, I remember, I think I mentioned uh, Randy DeYoung's name. He was the original author of this study. They had a lot of collaborators. Um, but I remember one of the first presentations from that research um, and them showing uh, harvest photos, an uh, shed antler and deadhead pictures of some of the non-producing deer. They had one deer, it was like a 180 inch buck. They never, over the lifetime of that buck and the lifetime of that study, found an example where they took a DNA swab of a deer that was attributed to that buck. It was a 180 class buck. He never, at least in that project, they never found proof that he may have been, an, either he produced fawns that never survived. He didn't, he didn't breed enough does that uh, it was representative. Or there are some examples of deer that are non-breeders. They literally, they might have big antlers, but they don't actually participate in the rut. Could be why he was 180 inch deer. He wasn't running around exposing himself to hunters. I mean, this is just uh, circumstantial and just uh, sure. suspected, but I'm, you know, there's probably examples of bucks that, I mean, that mortality rates from hunting is the highest thing that happens. You know, when like what's the most uh, causes of deer death? Hunting is it. And uh, I'm, I'm sure there's examples out there where bucks don't really breed does, they don't, uh, they don't contribute that way, but because of that, they're not at risk of it, and they reach those older ages to produce 90 to 100% of their antler growth. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of hunters just live under this false understanding that like, I saw this buck breed, or I saw that buck chasing this doe, therefore he sired a, a fawn or two fawns with her and that now is going to be a part of my future generation uh, that I'm going to be able to manage but it's like as with the information we've covered today that couldn't be farther from the truth because we honestly don't know if he just because he was chasing her if he bred her if he yeah, was a lot of ifs there's a lot of ifs and buts but keep going <laughs> if another buck came in or she had been bred prior to that that observation. Um, so are both twins that she's now pregnant with, 
sired from the same father. We don't know that, right? Then we don't know really what the actual success rate of her um, giving birth to both of them, then them living to a six month period. Um, Then we don't know, we're going to assume, let's just say, assume that both made it, um, which is unlikely, but let's say both made it. One's a buck, one's a doe from a 50, 50 chance of of offspring. Um, That buck then is probably going to disperse. So all these factors that are coming into play here, which are, again, not anecdotal, not an observation. It's scientific research to say, at the end of the day, it's probably not likely that that you watched that buck breed one doe, and that's the, that's the, the one fawn that he is replacing himself with in this population. And I think that the other, let's say, fallacy or, or misunderstanding is that rate of that rate of um, offspring that get lost or die, let's just say, that aren't recruited into that six-month-old fall-type uh, herd, the the amount of death that's on the landscape, and, and I've had um, the opportunity when I was in college to uh, be a part of some um, fawn recruitment studies in the mid-Atlantic, um, collaring fawns and then monitoring them daily and then trying to learn and do necropsies on right what killed it mm-hmm. large majority of the ones that we found um maybe we stumbled upon them some had um uh, vaginal implant transmitters so yes. we were yeah. that. and then others we were just we had thermal imagers we'd go through at night capture the fawn collar it and move on but at the end of the day sometimes we'd find twins or uh you know they're laid next next to each other but but truthfully when we were going back and seeing the mortality rate a lot of them were simply abandoned and died of uh starvation or or emaciation the 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 nutrition side of things or the stress on lactation mama doe she just left one and it died and and it and it was poor or then maybe it was going let's say downhill um, and then got predated on because it couldn't fend for itself or anything like that, or it wasn't hid well. She was literally just abandoned. Uh, a, but a lot, a lot of that is, uh, um, you know, there is abandonment, but some of that too can be attributed to uh, the doe is not healthy enough herself, and so is yeah. not giving the milk meal to the fawn as often, or mm-hmm. filling the fawn's belly as much as possible. And so that fawn is hungry. And so yep. it calls out more mm-hmm. often for mama and is calling yep. attention to itself. And so it may not be intentional, but in places of poor nutrition where your habitat is not where it should be, those does are not producing the milk that they should be, which, is, which indirectly causes those fawns to be hungry. And they That's make themselves targets because they're 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 bleeding real loud. And when I say bleeding, not like bleeding blood, but they're like, you know, they're vocalizing for food. And that's that's a calling card. You know, yeah. call something in. Here, uh, here I am. Come here get I am. You know, and- one thing you just said, I know you were on track there, but yeah. to bring bring it back a little bit, uh, you just said the ifs and buts conversation, all of that stuff. I used to have a colleague that worked with me. That, I, that said it, kind of the analogy he'd say, which I think is a good one, is like, when you add all that up, it's like trying to go 
change the salinity of the ocean by dumping a cup of salt into it. Yeah. Like yeah. you want to increase the salt level of the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean by just adding a little bit to it. It just gets diluted. There's all of these ifs and buts, ifs and buts down the ladder that at some point, whatever you're trying to do and your thinking is working is probably just that. It's you're thinking it's working, but it does it is not happening. It's not working. Yeah. And and I think that this is where the rubber meets the road for me and and why we do this podcast and why we want to help people is for the fact that truthfully, I don't want to waste my time on anything that I don't have influence over. Like I want to be as influential as possible, but I want to be realistic in my efforts though, too. I don't want to sit there and think that I'm all these intricate processes and and whatnot that like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to influence this to make this maybe um, heard impact from a quality standpoint. No science tells me that I should let bucks get to older age class and then I should increase the amount of nutrition on the landscape. Um, And, and those are going to be my factors and we can, we could, those are, those are broad factors, um, especially the nutritional side of things, but because we we haven't, we don't, you know, that doesn't capture cover and dense pockets and all these things to hold deer during the rut and influence all that. But at the end of the day, I'm literally not worried about genetic material and the exchange of that from bucks to does um, from excursions to, to dispersal or anything. Cause literally I can't do anything about it. So I'm yeah. not worried about it. And, and at the end of the day um, that's just, let's say mental space that, that is, if you will, cluttering me and causing me to not impact things that I can impact. And if, if again, a, a, a mature buck on average is really just replacing himself in his lifetime. Not all uh, of them even. Half, you know, 60% of them are replacing themselves. 60%. Oh, I mean, the, so, the you know, just... one, of the, one of the things I wanted to, not that we're bringing it home yet, maybe yeah. we are, but what you just said was perspective. And uh, that's one of the things I, I jotted down that I wanted to make sure I talked about is, you know, some of the things that I'm most proud of, of, uh, you know, in my career and talking uh-huh. about all, talking about deer and management, all these things is, and I think this is uh, something that you can attribute to our our organization and our founder and kind of like reframing the way we think is not only that you have um, the power to make a change, yeah. but also what is success, defining that. And sure. uh, I think, you know, I'm as infatuated with antlers as anybody. It's probably why I, I'm in the career. You know, uh, you know, I grew up hunting. And I wanted to learn about deer and I went to school for it and I tried to make something, you know, make a career out of it. And it's probably, you know, it's tied to antler size. Uh, there's, there's just something very alluring to it, but you know, uh, within that, within that conversation couched within all of that is, you know, what is success when you're talking about trying to make some of these efforts, you know, increasing nutrition, increasing age, influencing genetics, you know, Part part of that is defining what is a trophy. And one thing that NDA has done for a period of time is trying to tell people 
to be proud that you are taking the best age class or oldest age class of your career, either in a consistent way or for the first time, because the older that deer get, the more wary they are. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Joe Hamilton, who's our founder, wrote a, a really great article about you know the true trophy or the real trophy. And he's, the article is really about the jawbone, you know, the yeah. age of the deer. Yeah. And so whether that deer scored whatever it is number that just came to your head as you heard me say that, whether the deer scored whatever, you know, you should be just as proud, if not prouder, that the deer was your first three and a half year old buck you ever killed, or first four and a half year old, or first five and a half, or first older deer than that. Those deer represent on landscape fewer and fewer deer. What I mean by that is there are not as many five-year-olds as there are three-year-olds as there are one year. It's just, as they get older, I mean, the lifespan of a deer, that's another whole podcast. They don't live that darn long. You know, yeah. they're a short-lived species. And, uh, and we just, we just covered that about a month to six weeks ago that I, I texted you about that information. Um, oh, yeah. Breakdown of, of younger age class herds versus older age class skewed by hunting or influenced by hunting, let's say. And we did a podcast breaking that down. Um, so so hopefully listeners check that out and are familiar with just like the the stark awareness of wow, there's not many five yeah. and a half year old deer on, on the landscape, period. That, that's right. You had you and I provided the pie charts of what yeah. would be representative at a herd level. And so by defining success, that's, that's a perfect, and I would encourage folks to go listen to that episode. Uh, by defining success, I am at a point in my hunting career, not my, my professional career, but my hunting career that, you know, where I live, I'm, I live in New York state. There's not a lot of mature bucks in the part of the state that I live in. And so antler size, not be damned. Mm-hmm. I want to shoot a big antler buck, but... Yeah. I target and try to select some of the older age class bucks. And I am damn proud when I do shoot one, one of those deer. And so part of that perspective is within the, you know, couch within the conversation of genetics and what you can influence, you can influence your perspective. Yeah. You you can decide whether or not you're proud. And I'm not telling you that you need to shoot a, uh, super mature deer, but just realize the older the deer is, uh, one, we all know it's harder to kill them. Uh, yeah. and two, they are rarer. And that rarity is part of the trophy, not just the antler size, because oh. antler size, there's the bell shaped curve, no matter what age class you're talking about. Um, you're going to have within the three-year-old, the four-year-old, the five-year-old age class, there's a whole bunch of them that are average. You're going to have some that are smaller antlered than average, and you're going to have a few uh, that are bigger antler than average. And threading the needle and finding that buck that is bigger than antler at that bigger antlers than the average buck of its age class, and letting it get old enough that expresses it—that's the thinnest sliver of the pie. They do not exist that often. And if you're going to shoot them in a normal state where it's the hunting pressure is average you know not a situation where you really are controlling it whether it's through regulations you know human density hunter density 
um, you know, whatever, whatever, public land, private land, it doesn't matter. But the average hunter is not in a situation on the scale and scope that I'm talking about that you're going to you're going to achieve that sliver of the pie every time you go hunting or every season. For sure. you know? And we all know that that's not that's 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 a pie in the sky thing that you should shoot for, because I think it's good because it keeps you getting up and going out there. Yeah. But be realistic, you know, and that's part of the discussion, too. So I kind of wanted to, you know, mention that too, is just, you do have influence of over what your perspective of a trophy is. Yeah. And and that's where I think where quality information, this research really needs to hit home for people. Is it, is for it to, let's say, be able to change and influence your perspective on what it is we see in the natural world, in creation, when we're hunting, not what we see in this unrealistic social media world where yeah. the big deer shared everywhere, right? That's that, just that's an edited version of reality. Yeah. Meaning there's there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor, whether yes. that is social media or uh television or whatever. Nobody yeah. shares the failures. Yeah. Nobody shares um not enough people I should say share the 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 average deer that they're shot. Um, or celebrated those don't go viral um the things that go viral are those unique circumstantial rarities that people think they can achieve yeah no not taking anything away from them because they do exist but we allow that to alter our perspective more so than we allow this type of information that comes and is based on reality to influence like that influences us less and, and so yeah. that's the skewed perspective and this um misunderstanding really originates from in my opinion because we, we're just not let's say focusing in and around the basics of this is what deer do and this is the reality of, of how successful in breeding and reproduction they are versus thinking that there literally is a boone and crockett deer behind every tree and yeah. let's let's just let's say hone our perspective and focus in on the aspects of overall management that we can have direct influence on age and nutrition and the rest we'll just let it take and run its course because guess what it's running its course regardless of what you think you're doing or not it is yeah. independently on its own because that is um instinctual from the whitetail side of things their reproduction rates their successes that's occurring independently of what what we're really we're we're doing from a genetic standpoint there's that spectrum i mentioned earlier uh at the very beginning of the podcast talking about you know this isn't animal husbandry but we feel like it is at some points because of what we're trying to do from a management perspective you know uh humans took wolves and made them chihuahuas that's pretty amazing you know but we don't we don't have that with deer in a wild situation um that's that's controlled that's uber controlled and there are uber controlled circumstances in the deer world unfortunately but in the wild in a real in a real world situation you we don't have it and so pay attention to things that you can control invest in those pay attention to those enjoy those um and then you know have a healthy perspective uh mm-hmm. it's supposed to be fun you know some of these discussions go down the path of 
it being too intensive and it's not really, you get away from the tradition of hunting, you get away from the tradition of management, the enjoyability of it. And, uh, you know, that I, I love science. I think I've, I've, I've written about how, how important science is in deer hunting before. Um, but you know, in this case, uh, science is teaching us something. Let's, let's learn from it. Yeah. And I think, <clears throat> I think just as important, um, like to, to, to piggyback on that conversation is sometimes science tells us things that we shouldn't do. It doesn't always tell us like what we should do from an application standpoint. Yeah. It tells us and reveals to us the things that we, again, are out of our control or things that we just don't need to waste our time on. And that's just as valuable in my opinion and should be to those listening as to what, or to when science tells us what to apply. And I think uh, application comes in the form of land management um, on, on a greater sense. And this type of information comes in from a standpoint of, hey, I, I, I have a lot of peace about the fact that I'm not really going to influence all that greatly. I'm just going to focus on the age and I'm going to pour the, the, the food from a management standpoint to them. And from there, I, I know if that's my focus as an individual landowner and hunter or, or manager and everyone else is, is not doing that, then I'm still going to win. Like, you're still ahead. Yeah. You're, still, you're still ahead. And, and I think there, you know, I have a lot of peace in that, um, knowing that, yeah, I'm, I, I like to be proactive and, and a go-getter and try to make a difference, but I'm going to spend that time and my resource of time on the things that I can influence and know that others, eh, they're just, they're going to be the, what they are. Exactly. And, and enjoy yep. the road and enjoy that process um, that that this perspective, let's say, gives me, gives you. And, and I hope that this conversation provides some perspective for those listening to that. Maybe they adopt it. I'm not saying, hey, we're, we're perfectly right in our perspective. Um, we are. I, I don't think we're far off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you, Matt. I think uh, I, I, I know that... <clears throat> these numbers are going to be pretty shocking for people um, just because of the campfire stories that, that you, you, we've all heard, right. The, the social media posts that we've read and uh, mm -hmm. just this misunderstanding. Um, I don't yet know what I'm going to call the, the podcast yet, but it might be something like who's your daddy or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> a little, a little clickbait. Um, but I mean, it, it, it's fun to talk about this. Um, I, I really enjoy being able one to review the science and the, and the information that you guys put out as an organization. Um, and then just from another like-minded hunter too, I think a lot of times people just kind of, let's say well, there's not enough, there's not enough communication um, open-ended like, Hey, this is the, what I think, this is how I interpret this information and apply it to my, my personal situation. So I appreciate you going that, that route and sharing that with us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this, this is, uh, what I enjoy to do is, is talk about deer because I love them and I uh, love hunting. Um, but I, my career and NDA's mission is dedicated to making hunters better. Um, and I don't bring, not trying to bring down negativity in this discussion. I don't think we are, but in case people are like calling BS to what I'm saying, 
you can decide that, but the information is there for you to use. It's up to you. Yep. Yep. I'm going to force feed it down your throat, but by golly, yep. we'll talk about it. <laughs> yep. Before, before we jump off here, Matt, I want to give a shout out to um, how they can follow along with NDA, but then you specifically. Um, and then I believe that there are some um, uh, Steward 2 courses coming up and maybe some Habitat modules that um, people can jump on and be a part of for 2023, once you talk about. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you wanna go to our website, uh, it's deerassociation.com. That's that's the uh, the website. We're on all the major social platforms: uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we even have a TikTok account now, which is which is doing real well. So if you're on social and you want to follow Deer Association, a lot of the information we put out comes from uh, comes out on social. I'd highly recommend uh, if you go to our website. You can sign up. We put out a weekly newsletter every Thursday morning. It's free. It's an e-newsletter that has two or three feature articles that all talk about deer hunting and research and management. Um, we have some podcasts as well. But if you get that newsletter, you'll you'll be tuned in to what we're doing and you can follow us on social. Um, personally, you can uh, find my information on our website on our staff page. Uh, I'm also on Instagram. I can't even remember what my handle is but i think it's matt ross underscore nda i have to look yep matt ross underscore nda on instagram reach out to me anytime through social or you can contact me through emails just matt at deerassociation.com if you if you want to talk um from uh the courses uh that matt just mentioned we do run a series of uh education uh events uh online and in person uh, we have a new online course that's phenomenal that we just launched earlier this year. Uh, it's all under what's called Deer Steward. Uh, we have in-person courses happening in uh, Missouri and South Carolina this year. I don't remember the exact dates. Actually, I don't oversee the Deer Steward program anymore, but I'm going to be at those events, but I, sh I should know what the dates are. But I'd encourage you to go on to our DeerAssociation.com and go under NDA Programs and look at our Deer Steward page. The course in Missouri is our habitat module. It's a two-day course, basically intensive habitat management. And then the one we're doing in uh, South Carolina is our uh, is a level two class, which actually builds on the, the online course that I mentioned earlier. Um, but those are multiple day courses that you get to hang out with me and Kip Adams, our chief conservation officer, and Ben Westfall, and some other folks. Craig Harper is going to be at those with the University of Tennessee. Um, just basically te teaching people about deer management. And so, if you if you come out to one of those, I'd love to meet you. But that's that's it in a nutshell. Perfect, perfect. Well, Matt, thank you for your time today and uh, talking about how people can get more engaged with uh, NDA and those um, in the field um, courses. So. Thank you, sir. And uh, certainly enjoyed you having back on the podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed it too. I don't know how many this has been for me for, with uh, you guys, but uh, I enjoyed every time. Thanks for having me. Thank you, bet. Yeah.